0: Is there, the there is a message of necessity at the desk. We have to accept the of necessity The message is accepted. Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and once again, I'll be starting off the show by taking you through three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following. A recent analysis from the New York State Reliability Corporation, shows that the volatility of wind off the Atlantic coast will challenge New York's ability to successfully rely on wind power to meet its energy needs. Now, this study reveals the critical weakness in the state's energy policy. The wind lulls, defined as wind power output that falls to just 5 to 20 percent of potential output, are dangerously common. This could lead to massive energy gaps in the future. In a related story, Offshore wind developers are demanding what could be billions of dollars in additional subsidies, citing changing market conditions. But here's the catch. They're refusing to let the public see how much they're asking for or explain their reasoning. They're facing some pushback. The city of New York and multiple interveners, which is a group of large private and nonprofit electricity consumers, have submitted a request to the state public service commission to compel Empire Wind and Sunrise Wind to show just how much they're asking for and why. And finally, as recently posted on See Through New York, overtime costs at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority last year surged to nearly $1.3 billion, with more than 1,100 MTA employees doubling their annual salaries through overtime pay. Now, I don't want to get too far into this story, because at the end of the episode, we've got a deep dive coming into this with Ken and Cam. So stay tuned for that. And now I'll hand it over to Tim, who's got a great interview with a few of the creators of the new movie Gotham.
1: Check it out. All right. Welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm joined today by Michelle Taylor and Matthew Taylor, the producer and the writer and director of the new film, Gotham, The Fall and Rise of New York. Why don't you guys start by telling us what the film's about? Well, Gotham, The Fall and Rise of New
2: York is about the what we think is one of the most miraculous, if not important, turnarounds in American history. It's the saving of New York City uh, during the 90s. But the film really expands because it starts in 1966 and it goes all the way to 2013. So it goes across six mayors. It shows a number of different ways the city declined, and then it showed how the city came back. And what's really interesting is we had started the project in 2019 to kind of commemorate these people who were getting up there and, you know, um, had largely been, you know, it had been almost 30 years of prosperity in the city and it was good to look back and really see how, how it worked. But then COVID struck and a number of our Mm -hmm. urban areas in this country started to decline. And we realized as we were making the film that, This film was really not about looking back, but it was about looking forward about how to fix some of the issues that were arising now in urban centers, not just in New York City, but in Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Miami, and across the country. So the film pivoted into really being a... A kind of a, a does you know, a plan on how do you turn around urban centers, um, and how do you create good policy and how do you work bipartisan across the aisle to save urban centers? And that's really where Gotham ended up going. It's really
3: to three different kind of categories, crime, um, crime slash quality of life education, um, the opportunity to really kind of educate the children and give a better gra- increase the graduation rate and better educational opportunities, and then welfare and getting people back to work and off mm-hmm. welfare and that and how each of those work hand in hand to really make, light, make life better for the residents in urban cities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, I, I was interrupting you while you were saying the thing I was going to ask about, but it yes. it, it strikes it reminds- me watching this movie that You're focused on these three areas, too, specifically, which have just been basically everything that's happening right now in New York. So this film ends in 2013. Fast forward to 2023. It's like the pendulum dropped and we started all over again. And here we are having so many of the same problems. How have you found that? I mean, as you now do the film launch or as you're through the film launch, how has that resonated with people as you're sort of taking this, the past and, and inserting it right into the future? Are
2: present. Well, it's really interesting because you know what people are seeing. First of all, you have to remember it's been 30 years or some odd and since the city has turned around. So if you are 30 years old, if you're born in 1990 and you're 33 years old or you're born in 1992, um, and you live in New York City, your perception of New York City is one of. This is great. It's it's perfectly safe. I can take the subway at four in the morning. I, in fact, am a am a uh, last gen uh, Gen Xer. So I actually do remember the city when it was dirty and scary and violent. So you have a whole generation removed from the idea that New York City is a fragile kind of environment that with bad policy can go south fairly quickly. And so. What's interesting is when you talk about bad New York, or when people watch, say, After Hours by Martin Scorsese, they go, oh, This is a myth. This, this isn't, it's, it's not even real. Um, it's very real. New York City has a much longer history of being a violent cesspool than it's been a safe mm-hmm. haven. Um, and it can very quickly go back to that state, which it did. It went back to that state, I mean, in mere months. I mean, it, it completely came undone. And so, you know, a lot of the cities being held together by denial right now that these things aren't happening and it will get better but unless people are conscious of it and they really kind of look at how the city is decaying and and take you know action um it will fall apart before their very eyes and so i think people are watching the film and they're kind of startled um they say wow i didn't realize it was that bad wow i didn't realize that you couldn't go to to you know the upper west side at you know 8 p.m. when the sun was down. Wow. And it it, it it was it's shocking to people. Um, and the film very clearly lays out like some of these principles on how to deal with it. And it's not a, it's not a theory piece, it's an action piece. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people are starting to feel that kind of pressure in the city, and definitely in other cities, I mean, more than New York City. In New York City, I think out of all of the cities in this country is probably weathered some of this violence and some of these declines actually better than say Chicago, which is a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are shocked, they're, they're they think it's a myth. Um, and the film really shows that it's not a myth. And uh, of course, older New Yorkers or people have been there for much longer than you know, 30, 40 years, you know, they don't want to go back. They've seen it. They don't want to go back. And if you're an immigrant who lives in, say, deep Queens or deep Brooklyn, uh, and no one's looking at your neighborhood or your part of the neighborhood, uh, you don't want to go back there either. So I think it's resonating with citizens um, who remember back or don't want that future. Because um, once you lose it, it's going to take a very long time to get it back.
3: I think that one thing that's the most frustrating, as you said, kind of releasing it now, is just seeing that we, New York has the example. It did Mm -hmm. the hard work, it did, the leaders were there. Mm -hmm. We did overcome in a way that a San Francisco and a Seattle and other cities never have been able to do so far. But for me personally, just experiencing the crime from when we started working on it in 2019, when I felt very safe taking the subway by myself at 3 a.m. in the morning, to now where I cannot do that. I mean, it's just so personal. And I think everyone is starting to feel this and looking for solutions. I do think the unfortunate thing is New York got really bad before it turned around. We're talking 2,200 homicides a year, 500,000 plus felonies uh, to the average citizens. And that was in a population of a million less than there is today. Mm-hmm. We take for granted a little bit of the lower crime and the safer neighborhoods, but it got really, really bad and before it got better. And I'd hate to see New York continue that slide because it's only going to get worse and it's going to take put its citizens out it's going to make it so it's an unlivable city no one's going to want to move there and that makes me so sad as a new yorker
1: mm-hmm. it's funny because and and you guys were living in the city during the height of covid or right before it or right after it and it that sort of happened in a bubble and matthew you talked about um how it sort of happened again and it happened overnight and then it kind of went away but it kind of didn't um, no. I reject the idea of you calling people who can remember what it was like before the '90s as being really <laughs> old. Um, but I do remember it, and I and and there are those of us who aren't really old, but maybe kind of old, who <laughs> do remember that there was a time when you thought about Times Square and you got scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't go to New York City on your own. My father worked in the city uh, the whole time that I was a kid, and we would go down there a lot, and um, you didn't go places by yourself, and you didn't feel comfortable going to Times Square and to places like that. And so there was a huge mind shift in all of this, and we got a little bit of a taste of it, and maybe we're still getting a little bit of a taste of it. But for those of us that it still feels fresh, this film is as much a documentary and a history lesson as it is a reminder of yeah. what we were and how we got out of it. And so the other part I wanted to talk about a little bit was, so there's a lot of interviews in this film where you're talking to um, academics, but also the practitioners who were there, right? So um, mayor Giuliani and the, the department of education commissioner and department of police. So what was that like, like, what was that process like going through with them sort of reliving it, getting the setup for it and then how we got to the best parts.
2: You know, my my mother worked in the city in the 80s, 86 to 95, and uh, my sister and I were actually child actors in the city um, in that era. So I remember, like, the Koch era. I remember the Dinkins era fairly, very clearly, actually. And I remember um, when... Giuliani came in, the city changed. And then my my family moved uh away for a couple for, for a while. And I remember coming back in the, the late 90s, my mother wanting to visit Times Square because it had been changed. And I think, why would we go there? And it had changed, right? It had drastically changed. It was complete changeover.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, to the point where I couldn't understand why anybody would visit these places because they were just dangerous cesspools and To sit down and interview these people like these are um, modern day heroes because you saw it, you actually get to see it. It's not like looking back saying like, oh, in D-Day, we stormed, you know, and it's a long time ago. This was now this was this is present Um, and it's 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 uh, current history. So sitting down and, and asking, like, well, how did you deal with this thing? Or how did you deal with Times Square? Or how do you deal with the subways? You know, we would never take the subways in the in the 80s. Um, and the irony was there was only 26 murders on the subway in 1990. And there was 2000 murders on the street. But the fear, it was just the fear fear and the, or, or or when the West side highway was up and the the squeegee guys would come out and converge on your car when you stopped at a light near the, 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 the intrepid, you know, and so you just had the fear and these guys talked about dissipating fear, returning space to people in the city. Um, That meant a lot when you're, when you lived in the city, when you lived in it, Um, because without that you can't live. And so there, you know, I, it was, it was a huge honor to kind of talk to these people and really dig into the principles that drove them because who in the world would want to tackle 2200 murders like who who would want to do that who would want to tackle graffiti and endless crime and, and welfare Our school um choice. or school choice. choice I mean it's it's for all it was the ungovernable city that's what everybody thought and these guys said, you know what I reject that that premise and they did it. And so um, it's very rare you meet someone who is in your lifetime, who looks at a giant beh- like Goliath and slays it um, in just a couple of years. I mean, if you think of most of the work that uh, under the Giuliani administration was done in his first term, mm-hmm. you know, which we highlight in the film. The first term is one of the most successful terms in New York history, if not the most successful um, in four years. So it's it's pretty amazing as a as a former New Yorker, present New Yorker. Um, who who saw it to hear all of it. And I was, you know, quite giddy doing these interviews.
3: I think one thing that surprised me or really made me appreciate it is in talking to all of them and you get into like, why, you know, why did you take on this big of a challenge? And it all really came down to their love of other New Yorkers mm-hmm. and saying, we shouldn't have to put up with this. Not only can I maybe do something, but no one should have to live like this. No one in the city that I love should have to put up with this, whether it be low graduation rates or bad education for your kids or crime and not being able to mm-hmm. utilize your parks. It's like, they all came together at the right time and just said, no, this doesn't have to be this way. And we all deserve better. And New York itself deserves better. Absolutely. And that's that was took a lot of guts to do.
1: Yeah. And so we're all hoping we don't get back to that point.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of
1: my favorite parts of the movie is um, sort of the conversation around Bryant Park. Mm-hmm. And I'll pre that everybody knows what Bryant Park is. Um, it's one of my favorite parts of Manhattan. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because it's it, it, as like a microcosm of what happened. It's such an interesting tale.
2: So one of the things that we wanted to do in the film is um, while a bulk of the of the change happened during the Giuliani administration, there were other people who started changing things well before mm-hmm. uh, Rudy Giuliani came in. And one of them was Dan Biederman. Um, of course, we, we highlight Cy Flegel of the 70s with schools. But Dan Biederman came in you know, uh, on behest of the of the Rockefeller's turnaround Bryant Park, which was the only green space in Midtown. There's like no other green space around. Um, and it's like 1.5 square acres. And there was something like there was like five over 500 felonies in a year. That's a that's a <laughs> lot of crime in a very small. I mean, you can see very clearly across the park. And so he came in and he started these business improvement districts which was a public-private kind of uh, uh, cooperation. And these, these ideas have been tried uh, in New York City, but he successfully kind of brought this idea mm-hmm. where the taxpayers could use their money to put it into programs that they actually wanted. So he cleaned up the parks and he actually did some innovations we didn't even get to talk about in the film. Like he would lower all the hedges, and he made the benches movable so that women could move the benches where they would feel the safest. Uh, every hour, they make sure that the male to female ratio. There's more women in the park than, than men. It allows women to feel safe, and you can see any part of the park uh, at any given time. And by creating, by cleaning the graffiti, by allowing women to feel safer, by not it's letting the first people, time well, yeah,
3: ever any park that ever made an effort to allow women to feel safer. Knowing yeah. that you bring women, you bring their kids, you bring their boys. Boyfriend, you bring the husband, you bring the family. If it all starts around there, then everything—that's what changes the park over. And they did put in private security guards, which is yeah. kind of amazing. Not only which the are guys, there to this day. They yeah. cleaned up the trash, but they watch out. I mean, I've been in Bryant Park and been um, bothered by a homeless person, and within seconds, someone is there being like, "Are you okay? Yeah. Let me, you know, help you with the situation." And so. Turning it around like that made it so that Bryant Park was livable again. It was the first park everyone started flocking to, brought back the families, brought back lunch breaks, it brought it just kind of revitalized that whole area in Midtown. That now is, you know, it, like you'd said, one of your favorite parts. It's where everyone kind of wants to go with the library there and. Such a fun whole neighborhood.
2: There were other people that were really starting mm-hmm. to turn the city around well before. I mean, this is during Koch. And look, we, we give Koch a lot of credit as well. Koch uh, did a lot to bring the spirit back to the city. He balanced the budget. He got everybody out of out of debt for the most part from Lindsay's horrible ideas. And so, you know, Dan Biederman was one of those heroes who kind of like said, I'm going to take this park and turn it around. Of course, he did it in 30, you know, he did 34th Street. He did it in Penn State, around Penn Station. Um, and this program, program ended up expanding all over the city and i think he said there's something like 76 of these these business improvement yeah. districts now that privately clean up trash and things like that and and that keeps the city you know clean and lower sphere and hence you know people come outside and hence it gets safer
1: right and which you know there's there's a natural inclination to do when you're running a business in a city to make it want to be better so let's allow people exactly (laughs) I was I was in the city a few weeks ago and I was walking back from a meeting and I walked by Bryant Park and um they were having a movie on like a Wednesday night where they have a big outdoor projector and they put it on a screen and I sat it was coming to America so of course I sat down and watched it for half an hour and I was thinking to myself it was after I had watched your film and I was thinking to myself like In all of the timing of history, it wasn't that long ago where what you were describing was the reality of Bryant Park. And so even as we think about the city now and cities across the country and everything that's happening, where it feels bad and it feels like, you know, things are going down faster than they're going up. Your film gives us hope that we can get back to it. We can get back to it with some pretty simple things. Right. It wasn't like they had come up with these new policies and theories that were that were crazy and revolutionary. It was like, you know, do the simple things clean up the park, people will come back, right? Yeah. So more of that. And I think that's why, you know, when I watched this and and I already told you guys, but I'll share with the audience, I I, I sat down on a Saturday night to watch this movie because it's that good. Um, and I had my wife watch it with me and I didn't really tell her what it was. I said, oh, it's a film about, you know, the past of New York City. And I didn't tell her that I knew you or, or how it was related to anything I do for work. And I asked her afterwards, how was it? And her response, she was like, wow, I didn't know most of that, Mm -hmm. but it brought back a lot of memories about New York. And so the context for her was the part that really hit home, that she understood what it meant when the city turned around. Um, And we get to the city enough now that she feels how things have changed um, Mm -hmm. and how it's a little bit different. And so... It's a cautionary tale it's a prescriptive tale it's a it's a good history message in all of it and so I, I really enjoyed it. I'm really thankful you guys made it. Um, I want to send them everybody who's listening to your website which is Gothammovie.com um, where you can find a synopsis of the movie you can find links for how to watch it please go watch it um and then you know provide feedback but um so what's next? so so you made this movie what's what's coming down the pipe next? we have a number of projects
2: coming down the pike. uh we have a film on the mon- on a uh, on monetary policy, uh new documentary uh, and i can let you talk about that a little bit. It's an
3: exciting topic looking at kind of what's gone wrong um at the fed, how we got into the situation we are today and what does the future look like with constant, you know, high deficit and, and not worrying about a national debt or anything like that. so another cautionary tale about, you know, bad things to come hope. And hopefully reverse in course, <laughs> it,
2: it seems to be our theme. And we also <laughs> have two feature films that uh, we're shooting later this year. Mm-hmm. One is a political thriller, and one is a comedy. So a romantic comedy. So so we also, you know, dark we comedy. Bra- dark comedy, yep. <laughs> romantic comedy. We branch out to a variety of things but, hang too happy, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, um the monetary policy film will be out sometime in early twenty twenty five. And uh, of course, these other movies will be out sometime next year. And of course, we'll continue to promote Gotham. Um, you know, we have future projects that we're developing. We have one on Robert Moses that we're putting together, which kind of was at the very beginning of this film, of the Gotham mm-hmm. film, that we were already in the works and we just slid it up to work on on Gotham. Uh, so we have a number of fun projects coming out in the next couple of years, and we're excited to uh, share them with you.
1: Well, Robert Moses has, uh, had a, had a lasting impact on New York.
3: Many ways.
1: We'll have you back to talk about that one. Yeah, so Gothammovie.com If we want to look at your other projects, where do we go?
3: Ooh, I would say, um, our website, electroliftcreative.com, um, would be the best thing. And I think the one thing about Gotham to keep in mind is this really was a love letter to the city from mm-hmm. us. Like it was a city that we love, um, and it's tragic what's happened to it, but it's, we wanted it there to be proof that it turned around before and it's not definitely not too late to do it again. But people and the politicians have to get their act together and they'll decide that they have the will to do it.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, you said it better than I could. Let's close there. <laughs> um, Michelle Taylor, Matthew Taylor, thanks so much.
3: Well, thank, you. Um, thank you for having um,
1: us. Gotham movie, we'll link it in the show notes. We'll link to your website in the show notes. Um, great to have you on. Thanks so much.
3: Yeah, have a good thank one. You. Thank you. Great to be here.
4: Welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm Cam McDonald, Adjunct Fellow at the Empire Center and Executive Director of the Government Justice Center. And I'm here today with uh, Ken Gerardin of the Empire Center to discuss uh, uh, the latest data release from see-through New York uh, operated by the Empire Center on MTA uh, payroll data. Good afternoon, Ken. It's amazing they're letting us host this thing again. So why don't you tell us, uh, can you give us the high uh, level view of uh, of uh, what, what was what was revealed in the latest uh, payroll data from, from the MTA? The
5: MTA, which is the agency that runs the New York City subway and the two light rail systems into New York City, um, has historically had a bit of a problem controlling its overtime for the past six years running. The MTA has spent over a billion dollars per year on overtime. Uh, The costs really took off in 2016, 2017. They first hit um, the the billion-dollar mark that year. We pay close attention to it because the personnel costs are a big driver behind recent fare hikes, and they restrict the MTA's ability to expand or improve service. Uh, we found that last year the MTA spent about 1.3 billion dollars on overtime. It's not a record high, but it shows that after they'd had some initial success bringing overtime costs under control, they are spiking again. We found over 500 folks more than uh, got over 100,000 dollars in overtime, and more than a thousand MTA employees more than doubled their pay with overtime. We even found eight people who each collected over $200,000 in overtime. Now, when we say overtime, we're not just talking about people working extra hours. There are contract provisions at the MTA that give people extra pay if they do different things from their usual jobs. So for instance, on the Long Island Railroad, if someone operates an electric locomotive and a diesel locomotive on the same shift, at least up, up until recently, they would get Uh, extra pay just for having done a slightly different job over the course of one shift. So these are ways that people can really uh, rack up their overtime quickly. The other big problem the MTA has in terms of overtime is that there are a number of union contract provisions that require them to give overtime to the most senior, which means most expensive, employees first. And that is a surefire way to make sure that your operation is going to be more expensive than it needs to be. So the Empire Center looks at these overtime numbers every year very closely. And we post it on see through New York along with the entire payroll. And we just added about 70,000 pay records for that folks at home can go inspect.
4: So I do know um, that several years ago, um, I think it was 2019 uh, based on, the payroll data from the fiscal year 2018 mta has a fiscal year that's the same as a calendar year correct correct so the um that there was actually a federal investigation into employees who had um had thrown in some some fraudulent (laughs) overtime and and then paid very very handsomely that i do believe resulted in either plea bargains or convictions right
5: There were. There were at least, I believe there were at least four criminal convictions uh, of Long Island Railroad employees as a result of that one press release. Uh, The tough thing, when we're looking at this list of folks, the 1,100 people who more than doubled their pay, uh, most of those were presumably done legitimately the trouble is when you have so many people lawfully racking up overtime that way it becomes very difficult to tell where the fraud is and that's that has the um uh, you know that has the effect of making it much harder to bring your overtime under control
4: and i recall um I recall from the press release that um that part of what resulted from the um the, the fraud being revealed a few years ago was that um, an outside consultant recommended paying more attention and the MTA annually doing an overtime report, which has not been done for this year. Do we smell anything fishy?
5: There was an outside investigation in 2019, uh, which which cited the Empire Center's work. We We appreciated that. And one of the major recommendations was that the MTA should do an annual overtime report, which previously was getting released every April. And we're now in August, and we still haven't seen a report for last year. And that suggests that the MTA is abandoning that and potentially other recommendations that came from the outside investigation that were meant to bring OT under control. So that's troubling. We're going to keep refreshing that website, hoping it comes up one of these days, but it it is troubling to see that the MTA isn't following what what were fairly tame recommendations
4: and i mean getting circling back to what you're talking about sort of the structural issues with the um the work rules and union contracts you know from from what i've read in in reports ridership continues to be down from pre pandemic levels um when in fact uh, motor vehicle traffic in new york city is is above those levels so it doesn't seem to me that that it's a it's uh, the, the overtime correlates to straight up demand, you know, extra trains needing to run, extra buses needing to run to meet uh, ridership demand. So it really does kind of um, uh, confirm what you were talking about with sort of the the work rules, not giving MTA maybe the flexibility to do what they need to do to keep their costs down and and having these these exorbitant overtime rates just because they've negotiated contracts that just kind of don't allow them to act with alacrity The union
5: contracts dictate more about how the MTA offers service than pretty much anything anyone in state government has done in the past several years. The union contracts control virtually every part of the operation. Uh, My favorite story when I try to explain to people just how hamstrung MTA management is, is right before COVID when the MTA wanted to hire an outside consultant, uh, an outside contractor to come in and deep clean the subway stations, they had to get permission from one of their largest unions first. And that permission was granted on the condition that two union members would be paid to basically stand and supervise and watch outside cleaners working in the subway station for the entire time, among among other concessions. So the union contracts really heavily control the MTA's uh, costs and restrict their ability to to bring down those costs.
4: Yeah, and in preparation for today, I went on to MTA, MTA's website just to their careers page, and it's not like they have um you know for there being 70,000 employees there i think i only saw a few hundred job positions advertised throughout the entire you know workings of the system so it doesn't sound to me that there's a labor shortage driving this this e- either uh do we have any sense that we can somehow crack the nut that is the mta's uh pay data to find out just how um uh just how these this overtime pay originates and just one of the worst culprits in the contracts there's a lot to
5: be mined in, in these data and I look forward to doing that I'll say this for the MTA whenever you have a large organization you are going to have overtime and whenever you have folks doing specialized things in a tight labor market you are going to have you are going to have difficulty filling some spots so I have, I have a lot of understanding for the MTA with respect to some of the overtime, but the overtime situation as a whole is is just off the charts. There is nothing like it in, in New York government or in, in transit anywhere in the U.S. There's, there's nothing like it. And it's, it, it reflects, you know, it's one thing to say, yes, the overtime is driving the costs it's eating up a lot of the fare and toll increases it's eating up a lot of the bailout that the MTA has received from New York City and from New York state taxpayers in recent years it's you know that's a problem but ultimately it's more indicative of how uh, how much needs to be improved in the way the MTA operates because it's it's really more of a symptom than it is a problem unto itself and it's it's a symptom of the fact that the MTA is first and foremost a jobs program that also happens to move some computer you know commuters to and from their jobs.
4: Well and you know I would I would add here today the MTA doesn't do itself any favors by being as difficult as it as it is, you know I I've I think a six-year tradition at the Empire Center since I've been around it and and knowledgeable of what's going on that getting the payroll data itself is like um, worse than pulling teeth here we are it's august right and the, their payroll their year end was december 31st and they've not done their annual overtime report that we can find online and it took seven months to get their payroll data so they don't they don't do them themselves don't seem to do themselves any favors by appearing to want to hide the ball for as long as possible Oh, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, the
5: MTA should be posting its payroll. You know, literally every payroll. I don't know if it's biweekly or bi-monthly, but there's no reason for them not to be doing what a lot of state governments or other state agencies are doing with respect to transparency. And it would it would buy them a lot more um, buy them a lot more grace with people in Albany and watchdogs like us.
4: Well, Ken, that's a, all the time we have for this topic today. I'd like to th- thank you for all your insight and helping me understand this a little bit uh, more than just from uh, my Sue the MTA for the data uh, perspective every year. Uh, so uh, I thank you for that. We thank the listeners for joining and please, uh, uh, please subscribe and refer to the show notes for uh, more information on this topic and, uh, and other goings on at the Empire Center.
0: For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at EmpireCenter.